recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink. This is Chris on Talk Show. Today is Friday, June 22nd, 2012. Last week, I spent the weekend at the home of um, Diane and Donald Brown in Saline, Louisiana, and that was very nice. On the way here, now I'm in Panama City. On the way here, I stopped in Metairie, Louisiana, and had an afternoon with Lucia and Richard Connick, and that was nice. And then I spent three days with Max Powell and his brother Warren in Biloxi, and that was pretty nice. That was great. We um, we met a Christopher Ryan from my Facebook friends list, and and an interesting fellow named Drexler, who's a um, basically a national socialist Christian and loves my mind comp site, and I got to meet him for the first time. I wish I could have spent some more time with him. We only had a brief encounter. Maybe next time. He seemed like an interesting guy. Even more so because he came from northwest New Jersey, where I used to do all my bass fishing when I was younger. So we had a lot of the same haunts. I'm in Panama City now with my friend John Wade Moore. And we're about to do um, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. Last week, discussing Luke chapter 4, it was made evident in more than one way that the devil of the temptation of Christ was most certainly an actual person. While many may believe that Satan is still in heaven as the Roman Catholics would like for us to believe, Christ said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven, and he was speaking in the past tense. It is clear that he intended the past tense, since he then proceeded to liken certain people in his environment in first century Palestine as serpents, and scorpions, thereby relating them to Satan, just as the vision in Revelation chapter 12 describes Satan. In that chapter, the Revelation says that Satan, that old serpent, who is also the devil, which is representative of all those who took part in that original rebellion against God, was cast out of heaven, that his place in heaven was found no longer, and that he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Since Satan is that old serpent, and since Christ said that he saw, past tense, Satan fall from heaven, it's absolutely clear that this has already happened long ago before the events of Genesis chapter 3, and no creative interpretation of any other scripture may turn these words of Christ into a lie. Satan walks amongst us in the form of his seed, as Genesis 3.15 attests, and he has done so ever since he was cast out of heaven and our Adamic race was created. The devil is not in heaven, but his dominance of our world is evident. And he tries to create his own perverted version of heaven. And he struggles to do that at this very moment. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 35, in the King James Version, immediately preceding the explanation of the parable of the wheat and the tares, we see a statement which reveals yet another aspect of the ministry of Yahshua Christ, where he says, and where Matthew writes, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Now, if things were kept secret from the foundation of the world, 
as the scripture attests, then we cannot imagine that the Genesis account of the creation is complete. If it were complete, there would be no secrets. For the serpent and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which must represent his race to have been in the garden in the first place, other things must have transpired in those ages leading up to the creation of Adam, which were not revealed in Genesis. Those things, those are the things later revealed by Christ in his parables, as Matthew 13.35 tells us, and in the Revelation. There is Old Testament verification of this very thing in Deuteronomy 29.29, where it says, The secret things belong unto Yahweh our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The Septuagint version of that passage, even in the Greek, reads very much like the King James Version's English. I have often heard it taught that the initial encounter of Christ with the first apostles was when he had told them at the Sea of Galilee, the Lake Gennesaret, to follow me and that he would make them fishers of men. Last week I had asserted that the event at the lake was not when he first encountered them. And it was not even when he first selected them. He had already known them, and we have evidence of that here in Luke, and also in the Gospel of John. Furthermore, he had already chosen them to be his apostles, even if they had not known it yet themselves. Here, that shall be elucidated further. Luke 4.14 must first be kept in mind, where it says, and I quote, Then Yahshua, by the power of the Spirit, returned into Galilee, and the report went out throughout the whole surrounding region concerning him. And he taught in their assembly halls, being extolled by all. If Yahshua was teaching in the assembly halls of Galilee, and if he was extolled by all, then it is certain that those original apostles who were themselves Galileans and who must have attended those same assembly halls each Sabbath must have also been familiar with Christ from those many occasions. With that, we will start with Luke chapter 5, verse 1. And it came to pass, with the crowd pressing upon him then to hear the word of Yahweh, that he was standing by the lake, Gennesaret. And he saw two vessels stationed by the lake, and the fishermen disembarked from them, washing their nets. Lake Gennesaret, Strong's number 1082 is Gennesaret, as Josephus also calls the place in Wars books 2 and 3, where he mentions it, is what we often call the Sea of Galilee as Matthew also did in chapter 4 of his gospel. Aside from Matthew, I have not yet seen it called the Sea of Galilee anywhere else in ancient pre-Christian writings. In the King James Version, it is the Sea of Kinnereth in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 34, Deuteronomy 3, Joshua several times, chapters 11, 12, 13, 19, Strong states that the Greek word Gennesaret, as the King James has it here in Luke 5.1, is derived from the Hebrew word Kinnereth, which we find in the Old Testament. And that seems to be a sound explanation. With the selection of most of the original 12 apostles being from Galilee, the Apostle Matthew, in his Gospel, saw the fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Here I will read from Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. And having heard that John had been handed over, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, having come, he settled in Capernaum, 
by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, in order that that which had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah would be fulfilled, saying, Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea opposite the Jordan, circuit of the nations, the people sitting in darkness have seen a great light. And for those sitting in the region in shadow of death, a light has risen up for them. From that time, Yahshua began to proclaim and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of the heavens is near. Where the Christogonia New Testament says, Circuit of the nations. The word for circuit is the Hebrew word, Galilee. And that is a literal translation of the word. That is because there was really never any place called Galilee of the nations. And therefore, it is seen to be a play on the Hebrew meaning of the word. While the apostles were chosen from the area called Galilee, their ultimate mission was to bring the gospel message to the region of the nations beyond the sea, to the dispersions of the true children of Israel. Many commentators would claim that Solomon's gift of 20 cities in the land of Galilee to Hiram, the king of Tyre, the account found in 1 Kings chapter 9, constitutes the reason for calling that land Galilee of the Gentiles. However, Hiram never accepted those cities. It is explained in 2 Chronicles chapter 8, verse 2, and I quote, that the cities which Hiram had restored to Solomon, Solomon built them and caused the children of Israel to dwell there. Gentiles did not dwell there. The children of Israel dwelt there. The cities were desolate, and Hiram did not want them. The land of Galilee belonged to the Israelites, and even though Solomon tried to give it away, he failed. That land was never known as having belonged to Gentiles. Israelites dwelt there from the days of Solomon, and in the time of Christ, and the apostles which Christ chose out of it were indeed Israelites. About the word vessel, this is, well, it's interesting to me. It's probably boring to a lot of people. Strong's number 4143, ployon, in the Christogenian New Testament is most often a vessel, since the word boat seems not to do these accounts justice. And ship perhaps creates an image too large. The word describes a craft of any size. It's a general Greek word. And those mentioned in Acts chapters 27 and 28 are evidently quite large. A merchant craft is properly a naus, N-A-U-S, the word from which we get nautical, actually, a word which appears only at Acts 27.41. These vessels in the Sea of Galilee, used by Christ and the apostles, were at least large enough for several men to work on for long periods of time and also to hold their sizable catch of fish. We see that in John chapters 6 and 21. And therefore, they were no simple rowboats. Such a vessel, believed to be 2,000 years old, was discovered in Galilee and is discussed in the September-October 2004 issue of Biblical Archaeology Review. That vessel was approximately 27 feet long, 7.5 feet wide, and over four feet high, men of the time seemed to typically have been between 5'6 and 5'9. Luke 5, verse 3, And boarding one of the vessels, which was Simon's, he asked him to set out a little from the land, and sitting, he taught the crowds from the vessel. These gospel accounts are very concise in many respects, and the content of this here teaching is unrecorded. The ministry of Christ developed rather quickly. 
But he had already been teaching and speaking in the assembly halls for some time before the selection of the apostles, which is seen in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, which I read here moments ago. And that would explain why so soon after the selection of the apostles, there were crowds gathered to him in order to hear him. Most of those people were already familiar with him and had heard him. Furthermore, in Luke 4.16, we see that it was already customary for him to read on the Sabbaths in the assembly halls. And in Mark 1, verse 14, we see that Christ was preaching in Galilee before he selected the apostles, which verifies statements in Luke. Again, right after this selection, from verse 21 of Mark chapter 1, we see that Christ had also been teaching and reading in the assembly halls of Capernaum by this time, as was also related in Luke chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. With a harmonious reading of all the gospel witnesses, the story is much more complete, and it is evident that these crowds did not simply come from out of nowhere, but rather there were many people already familiar with Christ even before he ever selected his apostles, or at least publicly. Verse 4, Then when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Set out into the deep and lower your nets for a catch. And replying, Simon said, Master, through the whole night laboring, we have taken nothing, but upon your word, I shall lower the nets. The word master here is epistates. This word appears only in Luke, where it is also found in chapters 8, 9, and 17. Often, the word kurios is master when the translators saw that it was speaking of common men, but it is usually rendered Lord when used in reference to God or to Christ. The Codex Bizai has teacher here instead. That Simon Peter calls Christ master here is another indication that he already knew and respected him since master was not a Greek or Hebrew form of address used by men of common persons. Verse 6, And doing this they enclosed a great multitude of fish, even bursting through their nets. Then they signaled to the partners in the other vessel that they come to assist them. And coming, then they filled both the vessels so as to sink them. The Codex Ephraim Siri has so as to sink them forthwith. The Codex Bizai, which while it does no real damage to the narrative, has quite a few interpolations here, reads, so as to sink them at any moment. Evidently, each of those manuscripts sought to clarify the inferred meaning of the original writing. Luke 5, verse 8. And seeing it, Simon Peter fell to the knees of Yahshua, saying, Depart from me, because I am a sinful man, O prince. For amazement embraced him and all those with him upon the catch of the fish which they had gathered. And likewise also Jacob and John, sons of Zebedee, who were companions with Simon. And Yahshua said to them, said to Simon, do not fear, from now on you shall be catching men. And bringing back the vessels to land, leaving everything, they followed him. This is the event which is often perceived by mainstream Christians as being the initial meeting with and selection of these apostles by Christ. That is not at all true. Rather, here Christ already knew Simon Peter. And according to Luke, chapter 4, verses 38 and 39, he had already been to his home and had healed his mother-in-law of an illness. Now, it was elucidated here last week 
that Matthew and Mark set that event at a later time. Whether Luke was correct or whether Matthew and Mark were correct in dating the healing of Simon Peter's mother to a somewhat later occasion, for which see Mark 1.30 and Matthew 8.14, is immaterial. What is important to understand is that Luke himself accepted the idea that Christ knew Simon Peter before the event with the fish, which is described here in Luke chapter 5. So here in Luke, we see evidence that this was not Christ's first encounter with these men, but rather that this was only an early exchange between Christ and those men who were to be among his apostles. However, the absolute proof of that assertion comes from the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John describes the actual selection of the apostles, an event which must have occurred prior to this here event at Lake Gennesaret, which is being described here by Luke. The event in John is unrecorded in any of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Luke, or Mark. And we find the following from John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51, where I will quote, The next day, John, meaning John the Baptist, again stood, and two from among his students, and looking at Yahshua walking about, he says, Look, the Lamb of Yahweh. And his two students heard the saying and followed Yahshua. Then Yahshua, turning and looking at them, following, says to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is spoken, being translated teacher, where do you abide? And he says to them, You come and see. Therefore they came and saw where he stays, and they remained with him that day. It was about the tenth hour. Andreas, or Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, was one of the two of those hearing John and following him, meaning following Christ. He, meaning Andrew, finds his own older brother, Simon, Simon Peter, and says to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated Christ. So we see that Andrew is the first recorded in the ministry of Christ, the first man recorded who recognized Christ as the Messiah, the first man after his baptism to recognize Christ as a Messiah, unless we want to count John the Baptist. But among the apostles, Andrew was actually the first to make the admission that Christ was the Messiah. Verse 42, he led him, meaning Andrew led Peter, to Yahshua. Looking at him, Yahshua said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Kephas, which is interpreted a stone. Kephas is the Hebrew equivalent of the word for Petros, or a stone. Paul often used Kephas to describe Simon Peter in his letters. The next day, he desired to depart for Galilee, and he finds Philip. And Yahshua says to him, follow me. And Philip was from Bethsaida. Bethsaida is the house of fish. From the city of Andrew and Peter, Philip finds Nathanael and says to him, he whom Moses and the prophets had written about in the law, we have found. Yahshua, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. So this is basically another profession that Christ is the Messiah. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good be from Nazareth? I'm sure it was just redneck land. Philip says to him, come and see. Yahshua saw Nathanael coming towards him, and he says about him, look, an Israelite indeed, 
in whom there is no guile. Nathanael says to him, From where do you know me? Yahshua replied and said to him, Before Philip called you, being under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael replied to him, Rabbi, you are the son of Yahweh. You are the king of Israel. Another confession that Yahshua is the Messiah. Yahshua replied and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? Greater than these things you shall see. And he says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heaven having been opened and the messengers of Yahweh ascending and descending before the Son of Man. Here it is evident that when Christ told his apostles by the Sea of Kinnereth that they would be fishers of man in fulfillment of Jeremiah 16, 16, he already knew them. They were already acquainted with him. The sons of Zebedee are not mentioned explicitly in this account here by John, and while they must have already met and heard him in the assembly halls, they surely already knew Simon Peter. They worked with him, and it is possible, but really immaterial, that they had not been a part of this group until the Lake, the Lake Gennesaret event. Yet Christ knew and spoke to all of these men who were mentioned by John before the later event at the lake, which is described here in Luke, and which is also described in Matthew and in Mark. Here is the prophecy concerning these fishers of men from Jeremiah 16. Behold, I will send for many fishers, saith Yahweh, and they will shall fish them. And after will I send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and from every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. Modern pastors love to talk about the fishers, but they never talk about the hunters. They often loathe talking about the hunters. They don't talk about the hunters because they have not a clue who the hunters were or why they were even necessary. Luke 5, verse 12. Then it came to pass, while he was in one of the cities, and behold, a man full of leprosy, and seeing Yahshua, falling upon his face, he begged him, saying, Prince, if you wish, you are able to cleanse me. This man also must have already known and recognized Christ. As Luke said earlier, at the end of chapter 4, that he had already healed many people and had been preaching the gospel of the kingdom. This man is certainly one of those who had been listening to Christ. From verse 3, where it says, and boarding one of the vessels, which was Simon's, he asked him to set out a little from the land, and sitting he taught the crowds from the vessel. Verse 13, and extending the hand, he touched him, saying, I wish, or I desire it to be, you be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy departed from him. The Codex Bazai says, and immediately he was cleansed. Verse 14, and he instructed him not to say anything, but departing, show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing just as Moses had prescribed for a testimony to them. The Codex Bizai ends this verse at Luke 5.14 by inserting a lengthy segment, which I will read. Just as Moses had prescribed that this would be for a testimony for you. Then departing, he began to proclaim and to spread the account so that it was no longer possible for him to openly enter into the city, but he was outside in a desert place, and they joined with him, and he went again into Capernaum. We do see such testimony at other times in other Gospels. This is but one example of the many and sometimes long interpolations found in the Codex Bazai, many emendations of the Gospel in that Codex. 
the Codex Pazai was the only one of the ancient codexes which was available to the King James. The, the people that made the manuscripts which the King James is based on, the majority text, the, the Stephanus manuscript, the manuscript of Erasmus, it's, it's um, one of the longest known ancient codexes. The King James does not always follow it to the credit. They do sometimes. Leviticus chapter 13 gives lengthy instructions for determining whether someone had leprosy. But the priests could not cleanse the leper, for they themselves had no such ability. Rather, the leper was to be sent outside the camp and could not enter in as long as he still had the leprosy. Here from Leviticus chapter 13, after the determination that a man was a leper had been made, we see these instructions from verse 44, and I quote, He is a leprous man. He is unclean. The priest shall pronounce him utterly unclean. His plague is in his head. And the leper in whom the plague is, his clothes shall be rent and his head bare. And he shall put a covering upon his upper lip and shall cry, unclean, unclean. All the days wherein the plague shall be in him, he shall be defiled. He is unclean. He shall dwell alone without the camp or outside the camp shall his habitation be. Now, there must have been occasions upon which lepers, by the grace of God, had also been cleansed of their plague. In Leviticus chapter 14, we see instructions for both lepers and priests which were to be carried out upon the cleansing of the leper. Among other things, these instructions state the following, and I quote from verse 1, And Yahweh spoke unto Moses, saying, This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought unto the priest, and the priest shall go forth out of the camp, and the priest shall look, and behold, if the plague of leprosy be healed in the leper, then shall the priest command to take care to take for him that is to be cleansed two birds alive and clean and cedar wood and scarlet and hyssop. These are the things that Christ is telling these this cleansed leper in his time, which he just cleansed. These are the things he is telling this leper to do. This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought unto the priest, and the priest shall go forth out of the camp, and the priest shall look, and behold, if the plague of leprosy be healed in the leper, then shall the priest command to take for him, that is to be cleansed, two birds, alive and clean, and cedar wood, and scarlet, and hyssop. And the priest shall command that one of the birds be killed in an earthen vessel over running water. As for the living bird, he shall take it, and the cedar wood, and the scarlet, and the hyssop, and shall dip them and the living bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water. And he shall sprinkle upon him, that is to be cleansed from the leprosy seven times, and shall pronounce him clean, and shall let the living bird loose into the open field. The Levitical priests had instructions for the handling of lepers, for the handling of cleansed lepers, but they themselves had no power to cleanse those lepers. Luke 5.15 And still more, there spread around the report concerning him, and many crowds gathered to him to listen and to be cured from their illnesses. And he was retiring into the deserts and praying. Most modern Christians insist on frequent displays of public prayer as some sort of seal of one's righteousness. It cannot be said that all displays of public prayer are pretentious and prayer together is, at certain times, 
a good thing. There's no doubt. However, very often, these prayers are used as crutches by those who are in reality often weak in their faith or have poor perceptions of their brethren. While fellowship should not be despised, the models for prayer found in Scripture are most often that prayer is conducted as a private matter. Here we see that Christ was retiring into the deserts and praying, ostensibly because he was away from home and used no money for four-star hotels. From Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets in public, that they may be seen of men. Verily, I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy father, which is in secret, and thy father, who sees in secret, shall reward thee openly. Verse 17, And it happened in one of those days that he was teaching, and the Pharisees and teachers of the law were being seated. Those who would come from every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the prince was in him to heal. The last clause of verse 17 may be interpreted as the power of the Lord was in him to heal, meaning to refer to the power of Yahweh, God the Father. Yet around this time, the word kurios, often translated as prince for various reasons in the Christogenia New Testament, had already begun to be used as a title for Christ also, which we have already seen in Luke chapter 5 in verses 8 and 12. Since Yahshua Christ is indeed Yahweh in the flesh, the difference is immaterial. Luke 5.18 And behold, men carrying upon a cot a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and to set him before him, and not finding how they could bring him in because of the crowd, going up upon the roof through the ceramic tiles, they lowered him with the cot into the midst before Yahshua. And seeing their faith, he said, Man, your errors or your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to debate, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who is able to forgive sins if not Yahweh alone? From Jeremiah 31, and associated with the promise of the new covenant, and I read from verse 34, and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they all shall know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. While this prophecy is also of the final consummation of the new covenant at the return of Christ, it is evident that the apostles truly did know him. The least of them truly did know him, being Israelites and not of the seed of Canaan. That is illustrated in John chapter 1 where John described their first encounters with Christ. They knew him immediately. They had witnessed the power of God in him and understood immediately that he was indeed the Messiah. Also, many of the greatest of them, as Jeremiah reads, the chief men of Judea also knew him, yet they were afraid to admit it. The Apostle John in his Gospel tells us this in John chapter 12 where he wrote, and I quote from verse 42, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. In contrast, many of the Pharisees saw his power and scoffed, 
considering him to be a blasphemer. They were not able to perceive that God is in him. And they ignored his good works, and they slandered him. Yet since only God could forgive sins, therefore, Yahshua Christ must have been God come in the flesh, which his abilities fully indicated. From Ezekiel, chapter 36, from verse 23, And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in the midst of them. And the nations, meaning the other Genesis, Tanadamic nations, among whom the children of Israel were originally taken into captivity. And the nations shall know that I am Yahweh, saith Yahweh God, when I shall be sanctified in you before your eyes. For I will take you from among the nations and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. There are no exceptions. All of the children of Israel shall be clean. A new heart also will I give to you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. The stony heart is a reference to the commandments written in stone, representative of the Mosaic law. The heart of flesh and the putting of my, meaning God's, spirit within you are references to the words of the gospel. The spirit is the word. The word is Christ. Christ is the word made flesh. The fulfillment of these things began when those ancient Israelites migrated from the places of their captivity into Europe, where not long after the gospel message was brought to them by the apostles, and especially by Paul. Ezekiel 37:23. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will save them out of all their dwelling places, wherein they have sinned, and I will cleanse them. So shall they be my people, and I will be their God. But he acts of the cleansing of the leper, or the healing of the paralyzed man, and with the utterances concerning the forgiveness of sin, Christ is proclaiming that he is God. He is proclaiming that it is he who is fulfilling these prophecies. His acts and his actions prove his pro proclamation. The Pharisees considered him a blasphemer. Rather, because the leper had indeed been cleansed, something which even the ancient priests of the temple were not able to do, and because the man with paralysis had indeed been healed, the Pharisees should have been able to see that he was indeed the Messiah. And they did not. And by itself, that is proof that they were not his sheep. Verse 22. But Yahshua, knowing their reasonings, replying, said to them, why do you dispute in your hearts? What is easier, to say, your errors are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? Now in order that you would see that the Son of Man has authority upon the earth to forgive sin, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, and taking up your cot, go to your house, and immediately rising before them, taking up that which he laid upon, he departed for his house, extolling Yahweh. And astonishment seized them all, and they extolled Yahweh. And they were filled with fear, saying, 
that we have seen marvels this day. The word, paradoxus, 3861, which appears only here in the New Testament, is in the plural, marvels. Liddell and Scott define the word, which is an adjective, as contrary to opinion, incredible, paradoxical, contrary to expectation. The healing of the paralytic is certainly contrary to expectation. From Isaiah chapter 35. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice, and blossom is the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it. The excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of Yahweh and the excellency of our God. Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Even God, with a recompense, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. All of these things were mentioned in the words of Christ in reference to himself during his healing ministries. This is what he answered as a paraphrase to the apostles, the disciples of John the Baptist who came and questioned him, that the blind see and the deaf hear and the lame walk. Verse 7, And the parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water in the habitation of dragons, where each lay shall be grass with reeds and rushes, faithful and fruitful people in Jerusalem. And the highway shall be there, and the way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. Christ is the way of holiness, and only Israel is cleansed. But it shall be for those, the wayfaring men, no fools shall not err therein. Indeed, in Jerusalem, which at the time of Christ was indeed a habitation of dragons, there was weed also among the tares. And that's what's being described here in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 35 also demonstrates fully that Christ was Yahweh our God come in the flesh. Luke 5, verse 27. And after these things he departed, and having seen a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in the tax office, then he said to him, Follow me. And abandoning everything, rising up, he followed him. This account is that which is recorded at the beginning of Matthew chapter 9, from verse 9 where it says, And Yahshua, passing from there, sees a man sitting at the tax office called Matthias, or Matthew, and says to him, Follow me. And arising, he followed him. Here Matthew, who wrote the gospel, called by that name, is beckoned to be an apostle. However, Luke calls him by the name Levi. Now, that may be just a, a coincidence, but it is possible and certainly evident that Matthew was called by either name, just as Paul was also called Saul. These people had more than one name. Several of them had more than one name. And several other New Testament figures, it can be demonstrated, had multiple names. Now, I have thought in the past, and I still think, 
that it is possible that Matthew was indeed of the tribe of Levi, not for this reason here, even though he bears the name. This is circumstantial because in Hebrew tradition, it was customary for a son to take up the vocation of his father. Therefore, it would make sense to me that Matthew, being a tax collector, had ancestors who were tax collectors, and in the ancient kingdom of Israel, it was the role of the Levite to collect the tithe or the taxes. Of course, so long a time later, that must not necessarily be the case of Matthew, but it is plausible that Matthew was a Levite. The publicans, or tax collectors, of the ancient world were among the classes despised the most by the people. They were notorious for extortion, since they all had quotas to meet, and would often take the short route and meet those quotas dishonestly. Oh, excuse me. The more dishonest publicans worked partly for the government and mostly to line their own pockets. Ancient histories are replete with examples. In any case, they were seen as traitors, much as today people see IRS agents as traitors, working against the common man for the sake of a tyrannical government and taking license to line their own pockets also. Verse 29, And Levi made a great reception for him at his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors, the scum of the earth, and others who were reclining at dinner with him. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured of them to his students, saying, For what reason do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And replying, Yahshua said to them, The healthy have no need of a physician, but those having maladies, those who are sick, have need of a physician. I have not come to call the just, but wrongdoers to repentance. Matthew remembers the last statement of Christ here a bit differently, where we read at Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, Now going, you learn why it is, mercy I desire, and not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but the wrongdoers. The words, mercy I desire, and not sacrifice, are quoted from Hosea 6.6. 6. The Pharisees were just as unforgiving religiously as the publicans were when it came to collecting taxes. Therefore, they were hypocrites. One version of the Septuagint has this at Proverbs chapter 16, verse 7. The beginning of a good way is to do justly, and it is more acceptable with God than to offer sacrifices. In other words, even in the Old Testament, one's good behavior was much more important than the conduct, the conduct of rituals. The idea of reclining at dinner, which we see here, which is often seen in the Christogenian New Testament, comes primarily from the Greek word katakaimahi, which is literally to lie down. The ancient Greeks took their meals reclining on couches and not sitting at tables. And this was the custom of the time throughout the Oikumene, throughout the Greco-Roman world. The portrayal of the Last Supper is probably not very accurate as it appears in the famous paintings. In verse 34, which I'm about to read, there is an apparent error in the Christogenian New Testament here, which I must apologize for, and I am not certain how it happened but it was probably typographical. The word nymphon refers to the bride, which is a nymphae, and may also have been rendered as bride, but it should have at least been bride chamber, as the word is correctly rendered in the Christogenian New Testament in both Matthew and in Mark. Here, it was errantly rendered as bridegroom. And like I said, that was probably a typographical error. Here I shall read the verse as it should appear. And I will read from Luke 5.33. Then they said to him, The students of John fast frequently and make supplications, and in like manner those of the Pharisees, but they eat and drink with you. So Yahshua said to them, 
The sons of the bride chamber are not able to make fasts while the bridegroom is with them. That may have been rendered, the sons of the bride are not able to make fasts while the bridegroom is with them. But the day shall come when the bridegroom is taken from them. Then they shall fast in those days. The NA-27, the Novum Testamentum Grecae, Nestle Land, and the King James Version both read verse 34 as a question, asking, So Yahshua said to them, Are you able to make the sons of the bride chamber to fast while the bridegroom is with them? The differences with the Christogenian New Testament don't rest in translation. They rest in the fact that the Christogenian New Testament follows the codexes Sinaiticus and Bezai and not the other manuscripts which the NH-27 and the King James follow. And in that manner, the reading of the text following those codexes agrees with Matthew 9.15 and Mark 2 9 to follow primarily the Codex Sinaiticus. It's not really significant. I just thought I'd explain it. Except for Moses upon Mount Sinai, where Moses went without food, Exodus 34, 28, and the Day of Atonement, which is commanded in the law, which we see in Leviticus 23, 23 verse 27, and in Acts 27, verse 9, fasting or abstinence from food I cannot find mentioned in the Bible again until Judges chapter 20, verse 26. So, except for the Day of Atonement, there is no law which demands fasting. In Judges chapter 20, verse 26, the nation as a whole fasted out of grief. Fasting was done customarily by individuals as a show of piety, or as a display of mourning or grief, but it's only commanded in the law of the Day of Atonement. Calling the apostles sons of the bride chamber is a clear reference to those Old Testament prophecies where Yahweh promises to betroth the children of Israel once again after having put them off in divorce in the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. Here we see another exclusivist statement in the Gospels, because only the children of Israel, according to the scripture, can qualify as sons of the bride or sons of the bridal chamber. While it is not recorded in the three synoptic Gospels, the Apostle John recorded these earlier words from John the Baptist at John chapter 3, verse 29, and I quote, He having the bride is the bridegroom, referring to Christ, but the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, referring to himself, rejoices in joy because of the voice of the bridegroom. Therefore, this, my joy, is fulfilled. Here, Christ, here in Luke, Christ calls himself the bridegroom. This can only be an assertion that he is indeed Yahweh incarnate, fulfilling the prophecy of Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, where it says, and I will betroth thee unto me forever. Of course, Yahweh is speaking to the children of Israel, and Hosea is writing in 750 through 720 B.C. or thereabouts. I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness, and in judgment, and in loving kindness, and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know Yahweh. Earlier in that same chapter, Hosea had already spoken the following of the dispersed nation of Israel at Hosea 2.7, where he says, And she shall follow after her lovers, 
the Israelites pursuing the pagan gods. But she shall not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but she shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband, meaning Yahweh, for then it was better with me than now. It is the same she, Israel the bride of Yahweh, that was put away by Yahweh her husband, who was later to return to her first husband in Christ. Only the children of Israel can be counted sons of the bride or sons of the bridal chamber. Hosea helps to prove that the people of Europe converting to Christianity are indeed Israel returning to Yahweh as the husband, which can only be Christ. That is what the wedding supper of the Lamb in the Revelation is all about. Where the bride is revealed as Israel. That is why John the Baptist referred to Christ as the bridegroom, and why Christ referred to himself as the bridegroom. For these same reasons, Paul said to the Corinthians, at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. At 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it is evident that Paul had already established as fact with the Corinthians a knowledge that their ancestors had been among the dispersions of ancient Israel. From Isaiah chapter 43, from verse 1, But now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. From Isaiah chapter 54, from verse 5, Yahweh again speaking to the children of Israel. For thy maker is thine husband. Yahweh of hosts is his name, and thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. And the whole earth shall belong to the children of Israel. Yahweh is the creator of the children of Israel. Yahweh is the husband of the children of Israel. And Yahweh is the redeemer of the children of Israel. Yahweh came in the flesh as Yahshua Christ. The return of Israel to Yahweh through Christ is a betrothal, as explained by Christ himself, by Paul, by Hosea. The new covenant and the wedding supper of the Lamb are not fulfilled until his return, which is the final consummation. Luke 5, verse 36. Then he also spoke a parable to them, that no one tearing a patch from a new cloth puts it on an old garment. But if it is, then the new will tear, and the old will not agree with the patch from the new. And no one puts new wine into old skins. But if it is, the new wine will break the skins, and it will pour out, and the skins will be destroyed. Rather, one must put new wine into new skins, and no one drinking the old desires the new. For the old, one says, is good. People would rather stick to their old ways. But we cannot graft our Christian understanding onto Pharisaism. This is the most common mistake made by Christians and by those pretending to be Christians unto this day. Today, many people find Christian Israel identity, and even when they believe that they have found the truth, they nevertheless attempt to graft it onto their Catholicism, 
Orontidae Lutheranism, Orontidae Episcopalianism, Orontidae Baptism, or their Methodism, or whatever other sect it is that they came from. What they should do instead is to wipe the religious slate clean and reread the entire Bible in the context of their newly awakened consciousness. And then, perhaps, they will not repeat the old errors which they may still bear from any of the former sects from which they came. Old programming is difficult to overcome. And the old, one says, is good. Here, we are told that we must achieve that. We must throw away the old skins and store our new understanding in new skins. From Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, you are to put away that which concerns the former mode of life, the old man which is perishing in accordance with the desires of deceit, and are to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new man in accordance, which in accordance with Yahweh has been established in justice and piety. So you have to become, as Clifton likes to say, like a little child in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. You have to erase the slate. You have to clean out the old leaven, the old doctrines, and all the old misconceptions, and start from scratch, and you'll get it. I will be here tomorrow night with a, a shoot-from-the-hip discussion for the most part. I'm probably going to pull some scriptures in the morning so that I have them in hand. Tomorrow, I hope to explain what two-seed line should be, where we must agree and where we should not dispute because we really don't know. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. I will see you tomorrow. Good night.